one of the most famous sociology or psychology studies, uh, and one of my favorites that I've ever read about, was called the Harvard Study of Adult Development. I don't know if you've heard of it. Uh, it began in uh, 1938, and it's the longest ongoing study of people. It's still going on today uh, that they established there, and multiple men have had to take over at Harvard, obviously. Um, and here was the core question that they asked at Harvard in their psychology department and their sociology department. They asked this question, uh, what makes people happy and healthy as they go through life? That was the question. So this is not a Christian study. This is a secular study. That was their question. They took 724 uh, people, young people, um, and studied them and been, and been following them for the last, uh, however many years of that, 80-something years. They were young adults, and um, they uh, were divided into two groups that they started the study with. So half of the group was um, uh, sophomores at Harvard, okay? The other half of the group of the 724 were um, poor street kids of the Boston area. Uh, the disenfranchised, uh, the, dis, uh, the disadvantaged kids, the troubled kids, they took them. They've been studying them. Now, most of them are dead now. They wrote a book in 2004 or six called The Good Life in response to this uh, um, particular study. And it, um, as a matter of fact, now they're, they're still studying the children, over some 2,000 children of all these uh, and descendants of these people. And here was, without a doubt, their number one conclusion from their study. This was it. This is their findings after 90 years to answer the question, what makes people happy and healthy as they go through life? You want a drum roll? <laughs> Here was their, their findings. That good relationships keep us happier and more healthy. Good relationships. Isn't that interesting? Without a doubt, that was what they would say. And it was... And it had nothing to do, it's interesting, I wish you could go read it, there's a TED talk on it for people who love to do all that, you can, whatever. It's really good, I've read it for in depth for years. But it didn't matter if they were, if they were poor and they made success and climbed the success ladder, it didn't matter if they were uh, successful and they failed and they went down and hit rock bottom, it, none of those things. They had all kinds of uh, variables that happened as they trust. At the end of the day, the most healthy and happy people within this whole study were those who had good relationships. And they weren't always just easy relationships. They were healthy and they were restored, but that was the number one truth that they came away with. Isn't that interesting? It really is a commentary on God's world. I'd love to say, well, there's a reason this is true, right? Because human beings were made in the image of God, right? Triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If we were made in His image, we were made in the image of a relational God. We say that all the time. Therefore, you and I are relational. And the first thing said before there was ever sin in our, on the earth was to say, was it good for man to be alone, that he needed a relationship? That is the call. Uh, that's what it means to be human, is to have relationships and to thrive in them and to be a part of it. You and I are made for relationships, and they're unbelievably important to our lives. Now, it does, the study does fall short because there's one relationship that's the most important, which is with God, man with God. But right now, if I were to ask you and tell me about the relationships in your life, if I were to say, I'm, I'm confident everyone in here would probably say and think of pretty quickly of some relationships that just aren't flourishing in your life. If you were to pause and think about that. 
Some of them may be going really bad at, I think, work level, family level, out in the community, wherever they are. If you were to think about that, I'm sure you'd bring those. And even the ones you have, you think, you know, my marriage or different things going on in my life, how, I'm not sure I would even define those as flourishing, okay? They are central to our very existence. And you probably would say, hey, when the relationships are good, I can, my relationships are good, I move out in the world in a lot better uh, strength than I realize. And here's what I want you to see. As we, this morning, as we look at the second half of the Beatitudes, which is the intro section into the Sermon on the Mount that we're doing for this summer, the first half sort of deals that we looked at last week with our relationship with God, but it seems to transition in the second half to our relationships with people. And how God's people, or what it means to this kingdom that God has, who he's building, has established and building, this is what it looks like to be a member of God's covenant family, if you will, of his people, to be a Christian. This is what it looks like, and this is how, we last week looked at how you get into this kingdom, and what God does to his people, and how he saves and brings them into it, and now as it kind of moves to the second half of it, as God brings you into this kingdom, it begins to turn from the inward things that he does inwardly, and as it moves outwardly, and this is how we live, how you relate and live among people. It's about the relationship. So God, here's what I want you to hear about the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount can be pretty uh, painful to look at because it has a high calling in, in, in the sense of, um, you know, forgive 70 times 7, or um, some of the commands are, are, are very strong, and uh, you're... you're uh, your holiness must exceed that of the law and the Pharisees. I mean, it, it makes strong statements that you go, don't know if I can do that. And we're going to realize that, and we have realized and are establishing that if this is something that God does through us and begins to give us a longing for, for these perfections in the sense that the, that the, that the Sermon on the Mount talks about. But I want you to hear that God um, wants you as well in his kingdom. He intends for you to flourish, particularly in relationships. And so the Sermon on the Mount is not withholding anything from you. It's actually God showing you what it means to flourish. So if you think about those areas in relationships you're not flourishing, this day, this morning, if, if you hear the second four that we look at, the last four, and part of the fifth one that we look at, you could say, if these are true of you, if God is building these in you, if this is the way you are or are becoming or live these out, this is a work of God in us, and it's also a goal that we aspire to, but mostly this is what it looks, he's saying, if you live this way, this is what it's like to flourish among people. And it's not just relationships in your family or that, it's relationships everywhere that you and I have in the world. It's within the family, it's in the workplace, and it's in the world, in the community, and in the church and outside the church. It's speaking to this is what um, it's like, uh, what we look like among them. So we'll look at three things this morning. We'll say that this, um, three, uh, um, three, three words as normal, and uh, an alliteration here. So we'll, we'll outline it this way, looking at the, that it's a counterintuitive to kind of be a part of God's kingdom and relationships. It's counterintuitive. That will be a little bit of review from last week. Then we'll say also that it's costly, and then also then it's confrontational. That what God kind of produces in his people uh, in relationships, the second two that we look at, is costly, and it has some confrontation to it. Okay? So let me pray. God, would you, um, would you be with us this morning, and would you, would you help us to, um, 
to hear from you. Holy Spirit, would you convict us? God, in many ways, as we see what, what the Beatitudes do, these first verses, as they are uh, a summary in many ways of the whole Sermon on the Mount and what it describes, we confess, and would we remember that what this describes is really what we long for. We long for other people to live this way with us, and we long to live this way. And so, God, would you help us to renew our hearts, clear away um, the cobwebs and clarify what it's like to live in this world. Would you give us more clarity? What the Harvard study did on adult development, God, we have the fullness of that to understand the whys and the more. And Jesus, you, you not only can pose the question, you have the answer. So would you help us to see that? In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. So first, we'll look at the counterintuitiveness of the of of the uh, of the um, of the Sermon on the Mount, particularly the Beatitudes here. And for those of you who weren't with us last week, you just got to go back and listen to a lot. I can't do a whole lot of review, but I have to do a little bit this morning, just because they're so interconnected. The way the Beatitudes are, there's eight, nine, seven, whoever, however you count them. There's different ways people think about them. But we're looking at them in this way. The first four we looked at last week, and this, the second four we're looking at this morning. But it's important to, because they, in a sense, build on each other and they're interconnected, I need to review a little bit to remind you because it really does speak our relationships uh, are, and how we live and how we learn to be merciful and be peacemakers and how we function in relationships really are rooted in the first ones as well. It's kind of, if you will, crescendo and moving from the internal to the external. So we should look at them and review them just for a second. So if we go back to verse 3 and we look at the blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So remember here, the Beatitudes is not saying you get blessed because you do this. It's basically saying this is what God does to those he blesses, and his intent is to bless us, and this is what he, what he does. He brings this. He blesses us by making us poor in spirit. Those who are made poor in spirit are the ones that have the kingdom of heaven. So notice that when we looked at the first one, the first beatitude here, blessed are the poor in spirit. Notice it's not just poor or poor in general. It's poor in spirit. So the way someone enters into this kingdom of God, this culture, this covenant family that he is working in is different. They enter it by the grace of God, but they become poor spirit. This is what they learn. They see about themselves spiritually that they are so impoverished, such in poverty, that there's no way that they could move and come to be a part of this kingdom unless God brought them. They are an impoverished person, so poor in spirit, there's no way they could be brought there. So if you think that you are a follower of Christ or a part of the kingdom and love his kingdom because it was sort of you came an inch and God came a mile, that's not what it means. It means you couldn't have ever come into the kingdom. You were so poor in spirit. And those who are people, God's people, they never lose sight of how impoverished they were. As a matter of fact, I just want to tell you, if you want to learn how to relate to people well, you must keep the first beatitude and really all these in line. You must always remember that you're so poor in spirit. How in the world are you ever going to treat your own sin as a log and someone else as a speck unless you really understand the gospel truth of how poor you are? We expounded that last week, but that's the first one. The second one is bless those who mourn so that they shall, and they shall be comforted. So the mourning here is not mourning over death, which we do, and Jesus did mourn over death. But this particular mourn 
as it becomes so poor in spirit, you see that you're destitute and impoverished and can't save yourself, but then you not only see that, but you mourn over the sin, the very sin that makes you impoverished. That's what it means to mourn. That those are part of God's kingdom. Don't just think that they uh, did a few bad things. They actually see the depth of their sin against the holy God and their rebellion. And they understand that they are sinners and they weep over their sin. They have a posture in their heart that says that. They don't look at other people and say, your sin's worse than mine, which is our natural tendency. My sin earns hell and death. And they mourn over it. Thirdly, um, they um, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the kingdom of earth. And this idea of meekness, it's an unusual word we need to bring back to our vocabulary. But the idea of being meek is, a, is the idea of just outwardly, uh, or, or that you um, are not superior. That's basically it. There's a God, and I'm not him. And so remember last week when we looked at it, we thought about it this way. Uh, trying to connect those, uh, that the first one, I'm impoverished and I can't save myself. That's what people, they, they're poor in spirit. Secondly, it's my sin that I mourn over, or sin, I mourn over sin and how bad it is, and the meek understand that I'm the problem. That it's them, it's their sin that's the problem. It's a, it's a if you will, it's a recalibrating to the garden, which where man was in his humility understood that there was God and he wasn't it. The meek, the, the meek remember that, and they live in that posture, and they see themselves in humility in that way. That's what it means in there. So uh, just a summary of that, um, one, a book I recently read, um, it was um, uh, actually two Harvard leaders, um, Leadership on the Line was a book I just recently read, and it was interesting, uh, as a secular book as well, and they were teaching about um, uh, just the importance of leaders and their own humility. And this works in even, even in the business world. And here's one of the things they said. They said that ancient Rome emperors, they did a study on that, oftentimes had a man stand close to them all the time, as Roman emperors, close to them to remind them of their mortality. The emperors would assign men to just walk around, and that guy's job was just to remind hey, you're mortal, you're mortal, you're mortal. Now, it wasn't as holy as it might sound or good now. The, problem, the, way they did, the reason the emperors were doing it is because they, although they thought of themselves as God and grandose and could begin to think themselves in that way, it reminded them that, <laughs> hey, any one of these guys in the Senate or anywhere else in the world, they could kill you in a minute. Like, don't lose sight that you're mortal. Well, in a sense, the first three Beatitudes are sort of like that. We need somebody as quote-unquote emperors of our own lives to walk around and remind us that we're poor in spirit. That we're meek and mourn. And how do we get to this kingdom? By God's grace. So, um, so you know, I, 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 the first point was counterintuitive, right? And here's what's counterintuitive about God's kingdom. If you were to go today and apply for a job and you were to say I'm pretty impoverished don't do things very well <laughs> and um, and probably aren't capable of doing those things on my own and I'm pretty lowly <laughs> that wouldn't get you a job would it that's counterintuitive we live in a world where this the survival of the fittest and 
The goal is to not be meek. It's to conquer those that are around us. And the problem is not me. It's you in the world. It's a counterintuitive kingdom. Because the first kingdom that God made in Adam and Eve has been lost in a sense. And God's reestablishing the order of the garden. And so we're in right relation with God. So it's, a, uh, it's that's the counterintuitive nature of it. We get here. You don't get here by works. You get here by grace. It's natural for us to want to blame others. But that's not it. It's our sin that's the problem. And we learn to live in meekness, not to conquer, but to live and walk into rooms and places and live as God's people. We're here, we're meek, because um, uh, we say, there you are. And the only reason I got here in this kingdom is because of the goodness of God. So now as we get to verse 6, I did, we looked at this last week, and I wanted to, I didn't highlight it last week, but I want to highlight this as more of a transition because this idea of, uh, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And I really feel like my personal study of this is that the first three kind of established what God brought us into the kingdom. But then this is, begins to show us if he has brought you into the kingdom, you've seen that you're impoverished, you've seen that you mourn over your sin, and you walk in a meek way, or you, that you understand how you got here, then uh, the thing you begin to do is you begin to hunger for the things that God hungers for. You hunger and you thirst. Now notice that strong language, the strong language of hunger and thirst. Listen, in America and where we live, most of us do not understand what it really means to hunger and to thirst. But the culture of the ancient days, they thought it was very common to go without a meal or for famine to come. Only the kings and the emperors had food all the time. Like people really knew what it was like to thirst. So what they hear is if when God does this to you, what it creates in you is a hunger. They would have thought not, oh, I'm just, I'm ready for the next meal. They would have thought, man, something within my body, I'm thirsting, I'm longing for something. And what is it that it produces when God makes, brings us to him? It produces a hunger for righteousness. For they shall be satisfied. They hunger and thirst for righteousness. And it's not only righteousness in your life, but we long True Christians long to see, that a part of God's kingdom, see this thing, that this righteousness to come to bear in the world. They long for it to happen. They long for justice to come to places. They long for the, for the poor to be fed. They long for those who are lost to be found. There's a righteousness that they bring. It's a segue here, I would like to say. As God brings you into the kingdom, you see the inner workings. The natural working of the work of God in us is to begin to turn our heads outward and to look beyond ourselves. Love God, love people. And this verse transitions it. I, now I want righteousness everywhere. And I long for it in my relationships and how I live. And we hunger for it. The same way a child, when you raise a child, I've seen it to be true on my five. In their early development, they can't think past themselves. But as they grow and they mature, they get better at functioning in a world and realize that I'm a part of a whole. Well, this transition in the spirit is huge, that we turn outside of ourselves. And so when we think about that, um, that we hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's interesting that righteousness, we usually think of that as, a, I do. I don't, maybe you do. Don't. I do. I think righteousness is a negative word. Righteousness is like somebody who's perfect and they're going to make me feel bad. But righteousness is a good thing in the Bible. 
And yes, it is God's holiness and his righteousness that is, ex- exposes us. But it's a good thing. The fruit of righteousness will be peace, is what Isaiah 32, 17 says. The righteousness of God and a Savior is a, God is righteousness of God. He's a righteous God and Savior is what it says in Isaiah 45. That he's not only righteous, he's a Savior. Do you see that? His righteousness is what is saving us. And so don't think of righteousness as condemning. What we're hungering for is a saving flourishing. Remember that the word blessed that we looked at last week is a word that's so hard to grasp in the English. And it's a flourishing that we can't even, like it's not just, it's, it's happy, but that's not even it. It's more, it's a holistic part of you. It is a, it's an idea of really what the, uh, the Greek world would have understood it, that the kings have so much money and have so much wealth. If you were Greek, which was the context here, Greek and Jews, who Jesus is speaking with, that the, a Greek king would have, or a Roman king would have so much money that they had no cares in the world. They thought of it, the Greek person heard Jesus say this, and that's the imagery they had. But it's in spirit. So in a sense, we as God's people, we hunger for the very thing that he's saying he wants to bless us with, which is a thriving that we don't have to worry because, the, because of what we have in his kingdom. So it's a righteousness that we hunger for. And so as this transition takes place, you know, most of the, a lot of the commentators say, as it goes from hunger to righteousness, now it's going to turn fully outward. I look out and I want righteousness everywhere, and now it looks to relational in its nature. But even righteousness, in a sense, has a, has a relational factor to it. It's sort of a threefold idea of hunger, this righteousness that, that the Beatitudes is talking about. It's like, first, there's a righteousness that I needed, that I received from God, according to the law. I received a righteousness, and I have longed to, to be perfect, and I can't be, and I need someone to be perfect on my behalf. That was what Martin Luther killed, you know, turned his world upside down when he says that there was a righteousness of Christ given to us. It, it, that there is a righteousness, that's what we hunger and thirst for. That God would give us a righteousness that we know down deep we cannot attain according to the law. He does do that for us. He gives us that. But then there's also a righteousness that, that comes in us. It's the fruit in a sense of what God is doing. And there's a righteousness that reigns in us now. This hunger for righteousness is that this hunger is so much that it guides me to want to see things change and be righteous in that nature. And so, but then lastly, more than anything, and this is what Sinclair Ferguson says, when I, I enjoy him as a, as a scholar and commentator. He says this about, about righteousness. He says, more than anything else, righteousness involves right relationships. Ding, 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 ding. The Harvard study. Righteousness involves, from the Beatitudes, a righteousness involves right relationships between ourselves and God, between ourselves and others, and in the world at large. So the righteousness that we hunger for is really within relationships, in some sense, in a major way. And so that's where we hunger. So then when we hunger for this thing, it flips. And that's the second point. It's costly. It's so costly. Isn't that interesting? Kevin and I were dialoguing this week about the, the fifth beatitude here as we come to it. And you think, I hunger for righteousness. And you think, what will be the next step? And it's to be merciful. Righteousness seems to be that of kingly language. I don't know for you, and the, and the throne, and that crown. And yet, it's a language of mercy that is, that is low, and it's costly. And so let me just say this. These three, as I highlight them, they are costly in a sense, in this way, in relations to people. And um, if we're honest, we're always worried about cost and everything. 
we worry about how much things cost. We worry about what it's going to cost us as we go places. It's pretty much at the front of our minds. I think you would agree that we're thinking about cost for ourselves, <laughs> whether how long is the graduation going to take, you know, or <laughs> like me this weekend, we're calculating our cost. But to reconnect it back to the first four, If the costliness is flowing from poor in spirit, it sort of doesn't feel like cost, although it is. I didn't go to my own graduation, my college graduation. I played in a golf tournament, all right? Um, I lied to my dean. <laughs> and then he knew I was lying. I was like, yeah, I'm lying. I don't want to be. I, I, I'm, my home's four hours away, and my parents can't come. <laughs> so anyway. Um, I think you can conclude from that that I don't want to go to graduations. But you know what? I went to one this weekend. I went to one two years ago. Graduations used to feel so costly to me. But I actually went and enjoyed it. You want to know why? Because of the relationships. I was reorienting relationally. There was this brunette who's 20 now who needed to graduate. Now there's a blonde girl in my home that's graduating. And because of my relationships, I've shifted. And that's sort of the transition that happens here into the Beatitudes here. And so then it says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive the mercy. There's a change in, in, in how we live among people. And so the mistake here when you read verse 7 is to think that mercy, we, because we received it and we, don't, we get it, uh, show mercy and we get it, that's not what it's saying. That would be in conflict with the, rest, the whole rest of the Bible. But it does feel sort of abrupt. But here's the bottom line what the mercy is talking about. And uh, i got to confess, Kevin and I processed this week that we, he, he posed a question, I'd never thought about it. You know, most of the time in Christian circles, I've said it a thousand times probably, that mercy is God withholding something from you and grace is him giving to, something to you. That mercy is withholding God's, and the gospel of his wrath and actually grace is him giving you salvation. I don't know if you've ever heard that. I'm not sure that's true, true the word, the true definition of the word mercy. Because here, what this mercy means, it actually means to move forward and move towards people and absorb and give. That's what it means. It's about moving towards things to, and absorbing the cost that comes with moving out into the world. It relieves the consequences of sin and lies in others. And so, it's the, let me just say that again. Mercy, that this mercy is talking about, is absorbing Moving out, absorbing what's with other people in relationships, what sin has caused in their lives. I don't know if you're like me. Part of me, I have to overcome. Well, you messed up, and you're a sinner. You get what you deserve. Well, who's not sinning, including me? But in God's kingdom, what He produces in His people is that they actually move towards things that are difficult. And their nature, what he produces them, is that they absorb it. There's great cost in it. It's very, very messy. And when they do rightly move toward it, they move towards them, and they don't 
um, hide behind sort of small scruples to protect themselves. You know, in the, in the Good Samaritan story in the Bible, when the Good Samaritan sees this man beaten and on the roadside, and the preacher walks by, and the Levi walks by, and he goes to help him in the Good Samaritan story in the Bible, he doesn't say, you know, um, one, he doesn't say, well, I'm, I'm on my way, and my plans are going to be disrupted. He moves towards him. He also doesn't go try to look for the robbers who beat him up. He could have said, well, I'm going to get these robbers. He actually didn't try to figure out how to deal with the unjust system that this guy lived under, and it was going on about how to fix the system so this will never happen to that guy. What he did is he moved towards him on the side of the road, and he had to absorb. It was costly to him. It cost him money. cost him all kinds of things in time. That's what mercy does. It moves towards, and it restores. Micah 6, 8, to, to do justice and to love mercy. This, this beatitude is saying that we, we, we love it. And it's interesting. Uh, notice that it doesn't give us a group of people you're supposed to do it towards. It's just who we are. We're just merciful. <laughs> Wish we were more of it, right? Amen. So, there's no description. So, who do you, let me just pause there. Who do you need to move toward in your family, your life, and absorb? And absorb something that's costly to you. Family, your coworkers. Who is that? Then it moves to blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And some think about this being only moral purity and all that. But let me just, it is talking about an impure heart. That God does something to those who are part of his kingdom, that are part of the kingdom of God, this flourishing, that they, they desire purity and they want the right things. But again, it's really most of the commentators, and they say that this is outward in its nature based upon the flow of the Beatitudes as it moves that, that way. And so outwardly, what it really means, those who are pure at heart, is that there's a sincerity to them and an authenticity to them as they move towards the people they're with. Meaning, they remember who they are. And they're not superior, they're sincere, and they're authentic. I know that's a word that is so valued by our culture right now, just authenticity and realness and just want to be me. But that authenticity, that desire for that is really rooted in our design from God. That we would function in a real way. And the way God's people move forward is that they think about it in this way, is that as I move into a situation and I'm going to absorb it and... and, and <laughs> And be a part of it. I'm also, I remember that I'm poor in spirit. I grieve over my own sin and, and the meekness of who I am in relation to God and how I got into this kingdom. And so therefore, I can weep with you. I can hurt with you. I can try to bring a selection, but it's not a thing like I'm a savior save the day. It's a pureness of heart. It's a sincerity. It's an authenticity. It's really hard to be here. That's the type of heart it seems to be describing. And then the last one there, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. And so notice it's a peacemaker. It's not just you're at the absence of conflict, but there, it's, nor is it just trying to attain the absence of conflict. But it's a, it's a fullness of the word. It's an Old Testament word that they bring forward that, 
that, uh, that really is shalom, which means wholeness. And so the idea is that when you move into people, you're thinking about the pure and uh, those that are uh, peacemakers, they should be called the sons of God. What they do is that they actually think of a way to bring wholeness and fullness to the place that they've come. So think about it, that they move towards it, that's mercy. You get there and realize, and you're sincere, and you're sincere about the place where you land, and you get there about yourself and them, and when you get there, then you try to bring wholeness. Blessed are the peacemakers, I want you to have shalom. And that shalom, yes, is peace with God, but it's peace in life. It's a full word. It's not just the absence of conflict, it's a thriving, and that's what he brings. So these three things in cost that God brings us, merciful, and he wants us to be pure in heart, and to be peacemakers, all three of these are divine in their nature. And they're first seen in our Savior, are they not, who moved towards us in his mercy and didn't just sit back and give grace, but he moved towards it and absorbed our sin. And that's what he did. And blessed are the pure in heart. And he sat and he wept with us. And although he alone, like no one else, could have looked down upon us, but he entered in and he was pure in heart with us and had compassion until the end. And then did he not bring us flourishing. We want and we think the Lord's forgotten us because our bank accounts aren't this or things aren't going well. But he bought the flourishing in the spirit that you and I needed more than anything. He came so that we might have shalom. He was the ultimate peacemaker for us. So, it um, also just by way of peacemaking, some, let me just add this in there, the missional idea of this is that to, to bring evangelism, to, to engage a lost world in a compassionate way about who Christ is, is trying to bring peace to them. That is the peacemakers do. Okay. Now, Last one, the confrontational nature here, and you see that, right? You're like, isn't it funny that the last one is peacemaker, and yet, whoa, you get it handed to you. Persecution comes. It just doesn't seem, when we look at verse 11, it just doesn't seem like that's where this thing would land if you started out. Uh, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophet who were, were before you. And so one of the transitions that happens here, you'll notice in verse 11, it says you. Now it's been kind of in general, but it's the second person now. It's been in first person, I think, or third. No, it's been in third person, moves to second. Anyway, don't matter. It doesn't matter. It changes, okay? It changes right here. And then it moves to that, and he says you, and he's specific. And it's almost like he knows. He's like, I know this is a whammy, right? I know that this is hard to hear, that we walk through this thing, and then it doesn't, in a sense, go well for you. You get persecuted. And notice what he goes back, and he says, in the end, he finishes, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. They were against you to fall. Rejoice that you're great in heaven. And so he knows it. It's almost like he has this intuitive nature uh, to him that, as he always has, um, in verse 11, um, I'm sorry, I'm skipping verse 10 there. I'm going on to 10 and 11. You see that? Those who are persecuted. But blessed are those that revile you. He moves to an end, and God finishes. It's like he knows that it kind of rocks us, and he says, yeah, this is what it means to be in the kingdom, in case it feels a little difficult. In verse 11, it's interesting that it's not actual murder, which happens to 11 of the 12 disciples. They live martyrs' deaths, but here it was words. That they speak against you. It's an incredible persecution for people to revile you and speak against you. 
But notice, well, I'm going to be honest here. This is the depravity of my heart. My struggle in Christianity is if you're lowly in spirit and you're meek and you try to be merciful, in my heart, I try to execute those so everyone will like me. Now, I know that's not true, and that's a bad reason. That's a terrible motive. But in my mind, it's that formulaic. I think, well, if you do this, things will be lovely. Doesn't it seem like to be nice and humble and move towards people, that would make them like you? Doesn't that, does that make what it sounds like to you? And yet they don't. As a matter of fact, it says to rejoice. There's an opportunity to rejoice. It's actually in the, in the Greek a word that means to leap. It says you can have a great rejoicing. Two thoughts. The first one is this, is that um, we think that it would do that, but that's who we were to Christ. He moved towards us in these ways perfectly. And yet we were enemies, and we still sin against him. That just shouldn't be a far-fetched idea for any of us. He has so graciously moved towards us, and we continue to treat him as he does not deserve. Why are we surprised by that? It's because we lose sight of ourselves. But then here, I think, is one other thought about the persecution. We can't go into all the persecution, what it is. But it seems to land there, if you will. It finishes with that being the thing that, that you, he lands on persecution. And it's the most costly thing in the end, I think. And yet the most assuring thing for all of us, if we were to be persecuted just as he was. Oh, I really am a part of his kingdom. And that's where he lands. He's like, if you get persecuted, like if you're wondering if you're in the kingdom. Now, I can't do a whole series on, you can't go out and make everybody mad. So what you have to do is say, have I walked through the, the Beatitudes through lowly in spirit and mourn and meek and hunger for righteousness and mercy? If I've walked through those, if those are present and this is happening now, our conclusion is, if you haven't done that, then you need somebody to rebuke you or correct you or do that. That's why we have things in the church like discipline and people that happens to people, superiority. But if you do, if that's where you're living and you land there, then what he's saying to us as his people is, then you ought to rejoice all the more. You ought to leap. You're more sure than ever that you are with me because I have been persecuted on your behalf. And I was persecuted by you, Shane. And you are mine, just like the prophets. And the old who were sorry sons of a guns, and we know all about their lives and that, but their mind, why? Because I was working on them. And they had weak faith, and some of them were polygamous and that. The only thing, reason they're in the kingdom is because of me. And this persecution will help you know that too. And by the way, the other flip to that is, if you haven't been persecuted, Meaning, if you haven't had words and feel and hurt, and you're like, if you've never asked the question, I'm being as good and nice as I can, and maybe you haven't, you haven't thought of the Beatitudes, and you're like, I don't know why these people really hate me. That's never happened to you? Then you need to ask, have I ever, how this whole thing starts, have I ever moved out 
on the mount and say, Jesus, I want to sit at your feet. God's people get persecuted. It may cost you, you may not get jobs one day because you were doing the right thing. You may be disliked by people. I don't know what your persecution will look like. But the righteous still live by faith. Let's pray. Father, um, would you uh, help us to um, as we respond singing here to, today, would you um, would you please make us merciful? Would you please make us pure in heart? Even would you be gracious, what a scary prayer, would you grant us persecution that you actually promised to us, all those who follow you shall be persecuted. Would you grant that to us and in a way that we would know it, would you, God, let us be a church that, that truly lives out and be a people who lives out the Beatitudes. Lord, this is, Lord, thank you that you have, def you've, this is a way you will really flourish. It seems counterintuitive and costly, but you want us to flourish. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.